Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New York has long been a city where people go to reinvent themselves, to start life over free from the constraints of places like Tsarist Russia, the Jim Crow South, and American small towns. And since the dawn of the 20th century, New York City's Greenwich Village has been at the center of that alchemy of reinvention. Its side streets, squares, and coffee houses have nurtured generations of artists, writers, and musicians, among them Bob Dylan. Dylan first set foot in the village in 1961, and even as he continues to make music, you can argue that his Greenwich Village years in the 1960s were a formative period in his life and work. Now a new book helps fans and students of Dylan walk the streets where his career took off. It takes in not just Greenwich Village, but the midtown Manhattan offices that ran the music industry, and the back roads of Woodstock, New York, where he found refuge from the big city. I'm Rob Snyder, Manhattan Borough Historian and Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University. Today I'm speaking with Dick Wiseman, Associate Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the author of Bob Dylan's New York, A Historic Guide, published by the State University of New York Press. We're here thanks to the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Welcome, Dick. Good to be here, Robert. For visitors who haven't been to Greenwich Village, describe where it is in Manhattan. Greenwich Village is um, the area around, I guess the center of it would be Washington Square. So it's sort of 8th Street on one side, and then it runs to the west side of the river. But it's very convoluted in terms of planning. So the streets kind of wind around and disappear, and little alleys appear that only run a block or two. Uh, So that's basically what Greenwich Village is. Now, this book covers Bob Dylan's New York, especially his Greenwich Village. But the book is also grounded in your own village days. When were you first in the village and why? I went to Goddard College in Plainfield, Vermont. So the first time I ever came to the village was in what we call the winter work term in my Um, second year at Goddard, which would be 1953. And uh, I encountered a guy named Bob Harris, who had a record company and a record store, Stinson Records on Union Square. And he and I became friendly. We started to talk a little bit. And he said, you know, on Tuesday night, you should go over to Tiny Ledbetter's house on uh, East 10th Street around Avenue A. And I said, why would I do that? And he said, well, there's this guy that comes and plays. His name is Gary Davis. And he's a minister who plays something between gospel music and blues. So that was actually the East Village. Uh, And the other side of what happened was that I met Izzy Young, who founded the Folklore Center in New York. And we became friends. And that was right in the heart of the village on McDougal Street. And it was one of the first uh, folk-oriented stores in the United States 
Uh, the other was uh, Claremont Folk Shop in Claremont, California. And then McCabe's in Los Angeles, which still exists, but in quite a different format. So that's sort of what brought me to the village in the first place. Now, were you a folkie before you got to the village or did the village make you a folkie? Uh, I was a folkie before because I started playing banjo in my first year at Goddard. And I had heard Pete Seeger records and Brown and McGee records and people like that when I was 13, 14 years old. And I used to buy 78 RPM records at Walgreens in downtown Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. And I think there were five for a dollar. <laughs> so <laughs> I got quite a few records at that point. Uh, so I only started playing when I was at Goddard. So I was sort of in the early phases of playing when I actually moved to New York. Now, what drew Bob Dylan to New York City and Greenwich Village in particular? Uh, Bob Dylan was in Minneapolis. He dropped out of the University of Minnesota after about a year, and he hung out in a place called Dinky Town, which was as close as Minneapolis had to Greenwich Village. He met a lot of folky people, and he somewhere got a book by Woody Guthrie. So he was fascinated by Woody Guthrie and his writing, and he thought it would be a good idea to go to the place where Woody Guthrie lived, even though he didn't really know exactly where that was. So what did he find when he got to the village in terms of people and institutions? Uh, he found that being broke was hard, and then he got a job at the Café Wa which was uh, paid him $1 a night and a free hamburger. It was on McDougal Street as well as the Folklore Center. And he started to meet a lot of people, uh, notably Fred Neal, who was sort of the MC of the show. And then he drifted over to Gertie's Folk City, which was on West 3rd. And he auditioned there. They liked him. And uh, Mike Porco, who owned it, uh, befriended him, and he went up to New York to the Musicians' Union because it was a union shop. And <laughs> Dylan was under 21, and he claimed he was an orphan, so Poco <laughs> had a vouch for him. And this was part of Dylan's whole storytelling thing, uh, where he would make stuff up when it amused him. Who were some of the musicians he was meeting when he first got to the village? And what was their impact? On uh, Mark Spolstra, who recorded for Electra Records, and uh, some of the blues people, Dave Van Ronk, for sure. Dave mm -hmm. Van Ronk was kind of a mentor to him. Uh, and then there were a little later, there was Tom Paxton and all the people that were hanging out at Gertie's and at the Gaslight. I'm struck by how your book also lists the homes and addresses of other <laughs> famous village inhabitants, like the journalist John Reed, the artist Jackson Pollock, the singer Barbara Streisand, the political activist Eleanor Roosevelt. None of these people were folk musicians, but did the presence of folks like this in the neighborhood have any kind of indirect impact on Bob Dylan or the people who came to hear him? Well, for one thing, Bob Dylan's girlfriend, Susie, was very into theater. And so he learned a lot from her and he would hang out in the libraries of various people and read a bunch of books. So I think the general atmosphere was understood. There were quite a few artists that there was an active uh, off-off Broadway theater community 
and there were jazz musicians as well as folk musicians. So it created a sort of an overall atmosphere. And yet at the same time, the bulk of people that were living in the village before the beatniks or hippies got there were Italian-Americans. Yeah, you, you, your, your book points out that when Dylan was most active in the village, it wasn't all artists and folk singers. There were Italian-Americans. There was an old Irish waterfront neighborhood along the Hudson. There were LGBT communities. How did all these different communities in the village get along? Um, they varied. Uh, one, there was a lot of tension between uh, the weekend people and the regular people, like the full-time residents, especially the Italians who had grown up there, felt like this was their turf. And there were a couple of uh, private clubs, which were <laughs> basically mafia clubs. And, uh, and there were uh, a, there was an influx on the weekend. And the, the Italians particularly didn't like it that... Uh, black young men would come in and pick up white girls. And the white girls were not residents. They also were weekenders and they were coming in from Long Island and New Jersey. So there was a fair amount of integration there. And uh, some of the Italians who lived there felt like uh, their turf was being infringed upon. They were not happy about it. And also there were so-called respectable people who lived in the better places in the village, and they just didn't like the scruffy beatniks or hippies. They didn't like the way we dressed. They uh, didn't like the way we acted. They thought our music was junk and so on. Did Dylan himself have any contact with any of these communities, like Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans? Uh, only, I think, to the extent that I, I, Susie was Italian. I mean, mm -hmm. there were Italian bohemians that had grown up in the village, and the Rodolo family was one. Dick Rosmini, the guitar player, grew up in the village. Uh, Maria Moldau or Maria D'Amato was a village kid, and John Sebastian grew up in the village. So not everybody that was, <laughs> was Italian was mafia-connected or anything like that. Uh, but the majority of people were, who were folkies were not Italian. I'm also thinking of Irish-Americans, particularly the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makem and Liam Clancy. Did they connect with Dylan at some points? Yes, Dylan was a big fan of the Clancy brothers, and they hung out at certain clubs in the West Village. And Dylan would go there um, and listen to their stuff, and they were friends. Now, Bob Dylan's New Yorkers organizes a series of walking tours with solid historical paragraphs on each stop along places like Bleecker Street, McDougal Street, Washington Square, and more. How did you make the choices to organize the book in this way? Um, that's, that's a, I mean, some of it was sort of natural, like McDougal Street was where most of the folk clubs were. So that was an obvious one. And then the corner of Bleak, Bleaker and McDougal was kind of folk Times square. There were coffee houses there. There were clubs on either side of it. The folklore center was a half a block away. Uh, some of the other stuff like the East and the West village was a little more complicated and that there wasn't really one thing. And my editor, Richard Carlin was very helpful in this regard as well. What did he bring to it? 
Well, he's edited dozens and dozens of music books, and he himself is a concertina player, and his brother is a fairly well-known banjo player, uh, Bob. So he has a background in all this stuff, but also quite a background in book publishing and editing. I was fascinated by the maps, which really helped me locate myself as I did a walking tour with your book. Did you draw them? No, um, they were totally uh, Richard's idea, and he found somebody to do them. So uh, I have to give credit to him for for that concept. Um, one uh, review of the book said it may be the first university book that's ever had a uh, university press book that's had hand-drawn maps. <laughs> now, you've got a lot of maps and tours in the village and its environs, but you also included Midtown Manhattan. What led you to go up there? Well, Dylan's management, <clears throat> Al Grossman, he had an office up there, and the infrastructure of the music business were there. So Moash's Folkways Records was there. Uh, there were a number of personal managers music publishers that had their offices in Midtown. So, um, and of course, Columbia Records, who Dylan recorded for, had studios and offices there. So although Dylan was definitely a creature of the village, he spent a fair amount of time recording Midtown uh, at his manager's office and so forth. You also included Woodstock, New York, upstate. Yes, Dylan moved there. I mean, there was a point, I think, for one thing, Al Grossman, his manager, moved there. And Dylan was also friendly with Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. And Yarrow actually was the first of the folkies to move to Woodstock that I'm aware of. And his family owned a cabin up there. And so he invited uh, his friends up to visit, and they all became entranced with Woodstock. And ultimately, um, Dylan moved up there, and then he married and had, I think, four children. And, of course, having four children in Manhattan would have been a bit of a struggle. So it was a natural <laughs> thing for him to stay there. But, of course, that did not end well because uh, he got many more visitors than he wanted to. They, uh, you know, He would come home and somebody would be <laughs> sitting in his living room who he never saw before or sitting in front of the house and wanting to have a lengthy conversation. And so Dylan then returned to the village and bought a townhouse on Bleecker Street, uh, and that didn't end any too well either. You've got a lot of details in this book. How did you do your research? Uh, it was pretty easy for me because I know almost all of the people that I was writing about, not all of them. But, for example, I knew Victor Mamutes, who was Dylan's road manager. Uh, I had met uh, Al Grossman in Chicago at one point, so I knew him. Uh, I actually did not know Freddie Neal, but I knew Tom Paxton pretty well. And I knew uh, all the people on Peter, Paul, and Mary. Any surprises as you did your research? Um. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that no one has figured out is that Dylan mentions a couple in, in his memoir, The Chronicles, that no one seems to be able to locate them, and people think that they are fabricated. And uh, he mentions reading books at their house and 
Uh, other people that he mentions, like the Mackenzies, are real people, and they're easy to trace. And this one couple, Schlow and her husband, uh, seem to be creations of Dylan's imagination or composites of other people. So I didn't realize anything about that. So that was all new to me. Uh, other things were not so surprising to me as I learned a lot of details that I had not known. Now, did you walk through the city when you researched this book, or did you work mostly from a distance? I worked. I live in Denver, and I worked from there. However, there was an odd twist, which is my daughter lives in Australia, but she had a contract with the organization she works for called UN Women. So she actually walked those streets and would tell me, okay, this is now a restaurant, you know, and she took some photos of the places as they are now. And some of the places haven't changed, like Music Inn was a record and instrument store uh, on 6th Avenue. It still remains there. Other mm -hmm. places are long gone, like the Folklore Center. You've got a lot of photos in this book that will fascinate a lot of folkies. Where did you find them? Uh, again, I got to credit Richard for that. Richard knows every folklore archive in the universe. And so he sort of put his tentacles out there and and got photos, uh, which are all credited, of course. And um, so that was really the maps and the photos were really totally he's responsible for. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, about photos of uh locales that we should or should not you know we could have photographed every building on mcdougall street mm -hmm. but that that wouldn't have made a lot of sense so we tried to only deal with things that dylan had some involvement with how does today's village compare to the one where bob dylan <laughs> made his name <laughs> i love that question well let's start with the rents <laughs> I seriously doubt that you could rent anything in Greenwich Village for less than $2,000. And that would probably be at the low end. And so the days of the $50, $75 rentals are long gone. Uh, also, there are more commercial establishments. And yet there still are coffee houses. There are still clubs. So some of the flavor is still there, but inevitably it's become a bit gentrified and there are expensive condos and townhouses that dot the village as well as dumpy apartment buildings. <laughs> How did the village years shape Bob Dylan? How did they shape Dylan? I yeah. think uh, between Dave Van Ronk and Susie, he became a culturated into the cultural community. I don't think he had read all that much before. I know he didn't much know much about theater or art until that time. Uh, his knowledge of music was probably limited to rock and roll and early folk. And he'd run into people with encyclopedic knowledge of music, like Dave Van Ronk, you know, who knew a lot about jazz and swing. And I don't know that these things directly influenced Dylan the painters did because he has become uh, something between an amateur and a professional painter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the theater thing, I think, influenced him that he tried to do a couple of movies. There are theatrical works that he's contributed music to that have run on Broadway and off-off-Broadway. 
What do you think the long-term impact of Dylan's success was on the village? Uh, it was tremendous on those of us who were working there. Um, suddenly, everybody is getting record deals, <laughs> including me, by the way. And uh, so, and before Dylan, there were a couple of people recording for major labels, like Carolyn Hester had recorded for Columbia. But before that, most of the folkies were recording for uh, Folkways, which was Moash, or they were recording for Vanguard Records, Joan Baez recorded for them, and Electra Records. And, uh, and the whole thing became, other than Folkways, everything became commodified. Electra discovered rock and roll. Vanguard discovered that if they put out records by Joan Baez or the Rooftop Singers, they could actually sell a lot of records, as opposed to putting out a Hetty West record, for example. Right, right, right. Any musical projects or writing in your future? Yes, uh, I'm working on a collection of books about music and politics that will be published uh, in England by Manchester University Press. And I'm going to write a, uh, I'm working on an outline of a history of the pop area, like Kingston Trio, and what I call the neo-folk songs. There were a ton of songs being written in the 50s, mostly by Broadway songwriters that were recorded by people like, of all things, Frankie Lane, Patti Page, Guy Mitchell. And they had a lot of ingredients of folk music, uh, but they are also commercial. And no one has paid any attention really about that in their histories of folk music. Uh, my friend Ron Cohen has mentioned things like this, but never dealt with them in detail. And it is my feeling that it is a sort of a liberal backlash because this music was apolitical as opposed to, say, Pete Singer, Pete Seeger and If I Had a Hammer. Mm -hmm. And yet it was the Kingston Trio that was responsible for the monumental sale of guitars and banjos and, you know, millions of guitar teachers everywhere and guitar manufacturers uh, like Martin suddenly making a whole lot of money, uh, you know, making flat top guitars or banjos. And so uh, I feel that, that those people have not, uh, you know, it's a matter of aesthetics. You don't have to like that music. It's a matter of taste, right? But Peter, Paul, and Mary also came out of that. And one mm -hmm. of the things that fascinates me is some of the people who, so to speak, went commercial get a pass from the purists and folk. Baez, uh, Judy Collins, Peter, Paul, and Mary, they're all okay. And yet they were all commercial folk singers. In fact, if you listen to Joan Baez, there's sort of a classic thing that she represents to me, which is in folklore, they say, it's the song and not the singer. Well, of all people, I mean, Joan Baez, it is the singer, it is not the song. It's her interpretation <laughs> of the song. And if you listen to the Kingston Trio, who are often defamed for their, uh, you know, teenage humor or whatever, their first records were made with banjos and guitars, period. The first Weaver's records were made with orchestras and choruses. So who's selling out what at this point, you know? And I feel as though there's a real lack of objectivity 
and and credit and all this thing. Plus the fact there are variations in all this, like John Stewart, who succeeded Dave Gard in the Kingston Trio, was almost the first singer-songwriter around. He was writing songs, I think, before anybody except maybe Woody Guthrie. And uh, he was writing them before he was in the Kingston Trio, when he was in the Cumberland Three. And he took the trio, he was very involved in the Kennedy campaign, uh, both John and Roberts. And uh, it's really weird because Pete Seeger was involved in the Henry Wallace presidential campaign of 1948 on the Progressive Party. And here it is 15, 20 years later. And John Stewart is sort of playing this role on a less radical basis, but certainly liberal. Uh, and he gets no mention for this, you know, uh, because in the eyes of the purest folk people, he was in the Kingston Trio, so it must have been a sellout. This is fascinating to me. I mean, you're dealing with really interesting questions here. To, to, to just to pose a big one, what do you think the long-term impact of the folk revival of the 60s was on American culture and politics? Um, the first impact was that um, I think Frank Hamilton, who was one of uh, Seeger's successors and the Weavers and who started the Old Town Music thing in Chicago with several other people, still the largest music school for acoustic music, he used to say, you know, Pete Seeger ruined so many kids' lives. They're running out there chasing freight trains and dropping out of college. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that, you know, he's he's being half serious and half comical. But there was that, you know, it caused a lot of us to question the sort of, okay, I'm going to go to school for four years, and then I'm going to go to law school or medical school or become a social worker or whatever. So, I mean, a lot of people in the folk music, like when I met Eric Anderson, who's a fairly well-known singer-songwriter, he's a student at Harvard College. He was a big fan of the Kingston Trio. I don't know that he would appreciate my saying that now because he became, you know, more venerated as a non-commercial artist. But a lot of people, Michael Cooney, who is a super purist, was a huge fan of Bud and Travis, the West Coast duo that did commercial folk and were among the first groups that did a lot of Mexican-American songs. So it's complicated. And the other thing that happened, I think, is that with Dylan as the conveyor belt, so to speak of, the singer-songwriter thing was born. And that is still wildly active today. You know, there are still hundreds of people out there writing their own songs either solo acoustic acts or duos or trios or whatever. So that was a huge influence on the music industry as much as anything else. And of course, many of the people in folk rock, you know, like David Crosby and Stephen Stills and Neil Young came to it through folk music, you know. And uh, in fact, um, Stephen Stills was in the Cafe Agogo Singers, which was a new Christie minstrel imitation group. And uh, <laughs> so th there was a lot of that, you know, where uh, people who got into rock and roll originally sort of came through folk. And then you had um, all kinds of songs being written, like Sam Cooke wrote, A Change Is Gonna Come, 
after he wrote, heard Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. Hmm. And he said that um, if that white boy could write a song like that, I need to write something other than You Send Me Baby. And he did, you know, and it's a fine song. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things your book and our conversation suggests to me is that some of the complexities and contradictions that were there in the folk scene in the 1960s in the village, they're still with us. They haven't vanished. They've played out in new ways. Is that a fair conclusion? It's absolutely right on the money. For example, um, the New Lost City Ramblers were the absolute example of a purist group. Uh, you know, they learned all their songs from uh, 95% country artists or old-time music artists and maybe a slight sprinkling of black music. And uh, they were totally contemptuous of the Kingston Trio. And I got into trouble with these people because I was a fairly pure folky and I got into a band called The Journeyman because I realized that, um, you know, writing 15-minute banjo pieces was not going to uh, provide me with a living which is very funny when you think about it today and Bela Fleck and Chris Daly and stuff like that. But, you know, it's many years later. Nobody was doing this stuff in, in 1960. And so um, I took a lot of flack from people in the village because I was in this band that recorded for Capital and we had an act and we dressed in matching clothes and all this sort of stuff. So you had the purists, you had the people that only liked old town music, didn't like bluegrass. You had the people that liked bluegrass, but they didn't like mountain music. You had a nest of people that liked only unaccompanied vocals. Uh, you know, the um, English folk uh, music song and dance society is still there and specialize in that. Uh, you had people that liked Irish music. And uh, one of the things about me, and I think Dave Enronk was another one like this. And I mean, it's not unique that I grew up liking both black and white music. Most of the people either moved towards white music or black music. I didn't make that distinction and it never made any sense to me. Now, obviously I'm not black, so I'm not going to go out there and make rhythm and blues records because that's no, not what I do. Although I did end up producing a few rhythm and blues records, but I didn't sing on them or play on them. Um, so some of these people really actively hated the other people. Some of them uh, didn't hate them, but it was like, oh, that's what you do. Well, that's not of any interest to me. And that still exists. And you can see it in the uh, Folk Alliance where somewhat dominated by singer-songwriters. And the purest folkies do not like singer-songwriters. Like, why are you writing songs, you know? Uh, and I got some of that, too, for writing extended banjo pieces. People would say, why do you want to play with a flute and saxophone player? And I said, because I want to. You know, <laughs> sort of, you know, I mean, I don't want to play the same thing for 60 years. And, of course, there are people that play the same thing. Like if you listen to James Taylor today, does he sound real different to you than he sounded in 1965? Not to me. Let's close with some thoughts on Bob Dylan. Obviously, you caught him in the very early years of his career. 
His career has gone on for decades, and he won a Nobel Prize. What's the big impact of Bob Dylan on American music over the years? I think that Bob Dylan and the Beatles changed the course of popular music. Uh, They would write about anything. Before them, songs were uh, about love affairs. There were novelty songs like The Thing. Um, The neo-folk songs were a little closer to folk, but other than maybe Two Brothers, uh, which is really an odyssey of the Civil War, uh, you know, most of the neo-folk songs were probably had a foot and a half in the pop area and a half a foot in the folk area. And so Dylan gave permission to people to write about nuclear disasters. He gave permission to write about their own love affairs, their own failings. And of course, the Beatles did the same thing. And the Beatles uh, worked with George Martin. Dylan never really worked with anybody that took control of his music. Uh, maybe Daniel Lanois was the closest to that, where, you know, he was kind of producer like, if Daniel Lanois produces you, it's a Daniel Lanois record. Now, it doesn't mean he ignores you, but his name is going to be an equal type to yours. And Dylan generally avoided that. You know, he was always the guy on top. Uh, and the Beatles, George Allen, I mean, George Martin was kind of the fifth Beatle. You know, he did the charts. He made the suggestions. He went to bat for them. He wrote the arrangements for the London Symphony Orchestra or arranged for other people to do that. So between the two of them, they changed the course of the way music was written. The other thing about Dylan, which was not true of the Beatles, was when Dylan first came along, people listened to him and their reaction was, what the hell is that? You know, because he didn't sound like anybody, any singer that they knew. It was talk singing, as my fellow bandmate Scott McKenzie used to say. And to a certain extent, it still is. And that changed things. Like people who did not have golden voices said, oh, I get it. I can do that. I can write songs and I don't have to be. Uh, you know, uh, Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra. I don't have to have studied voice for 18 years. That was a major change in music as well, you know. And then both Dylan and Neil Young did this curious thing where it seemed like they would do a record. I'm just going to make this up and be silly. They do a record of African music. And then the next record is country and Western. And then the third record is jazz. So they tried not to repeat themselves. Well, the formula of pop music is you do repeat yourself. You know, like Tony Bennett has pretty much, again, trolled the same area. The difference being that he started doing duets in his old age with other people like Lady Gaga. That, uh, But really, Lady Gaga bent to him, not the other way around. Uh, and... Uh, so there were all of those influences, you know, that were, I think were very significant. Well, thank you very much. I want you to know I tried out Bob Dylan's New York on a walk through the village. I was out for two hours and I barely scratched the surface <laughs> of what the book has to offer. So Dick Weissman, thanks for being with us today. I'm Rob Snyder for the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Thanks for talking with me.